Born in India and having grown up in Michigan, Chanu Mapleton has had an exciting journey within the automotive industry. From sales and marketing to engineering and product development, Chanu has worked with products dating back to the Pontiac Fiero and early days of 3M Clearbra products. He now serves as co-founder and co-owner of InnoKinetic and Black Shadow Motors, which involves engineering, manufacturing, and distributing aftermarket parts for Lotus, while also orchestrating restorations of all makes and models. Chanu's a busy guy, but he still makes time for a few car-inspired projects, such as a watch box for a standard H favorite watch brand. A few weeks back, I took a drive up to the Black Shadow offices in Temecula, where Chanu and I chatted about his story. We talk about everything from Led Zeppelin to Volkswagen GTIs, a race car that he designed that got some heavy press, and the fact that new ideas often keep him up at night. This is a fun one for you car nuts. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. Chanu, thanks for being on the show, man. All right, Wes. Yeah. It's uh, it's good to see you again. Uh, it's been a while, I guess. Absolutely. Maybe six months since Cars and Coffee. Yeah, I think at Secret Car Club, right? It's where we first met. Yeah, and Michael. So the way we start these things off is we usually talk about the history a little bit. So where where are you from? Michigan, right? Yeah, I was originally born in India, and I came to Detroit when I was three. Okay. Grew up in Detroit, so lifelong car fanatic. Uh, my first memory is looking at cars, you know, out out uh, my preschool window, cars running by on Warren Avenue. So, American-made cars, more than less. Yeah, for the most part, you know, my dad had a series of American cars, but he also started buying, you know, he bought a French car, Renault, and then he had German Volkswagens, and so. Um, but as a car guy, you know, and a, and a kid, you know, we were talking about Road and Track magazine. I mean, I, that was my Bible, and I memorized every stat in the back of those things, and I could. You know, I was the little nerd kid who could pick out um, a car by its taillight from a mile away, right? Yeah, kind of that way as well. Yeah. So, you know, you know that problem. And, and uh, so we, we, you know, so I love cars of all types. But yeah, Detroit, we, we had predominantly American cars. You yeah. Know? And, you know, I started my career at Pontiac Motors. So in 1985, I started working at Pontiac Fiero Assembly in Pontiac, Michigan. So that was, um, you know, where I started um, in the industry, um, working as an engineering student, basically. Sure. You know, I went to an engineering school that had a cooperative program from freshman year onwards. It's now called Kettering University. Okay. You know, when I was there, it was called GMI. Um, but 100 year, in fact, uh, Kettering just celebrated 100 year um, kind of anniversary last year. Um, so it's been around for a long time. In fact, Mary Barra, who is now the CEO and chairman of GM, is a graduate, and I, in fact, I work for her at Fiero. Oh, no yeah. So. Well, just to rewind just a little bit, like when you were a kid, obviously you were noticing taillights and such, but what else were you into? Were you into music? We're sitting here in your office in Temecula, and you've got Jimmy Page and Robert Plant behind you. Uh, so you're obviously a Zeppelin guy. Yeah, Is that, I, was I, that early on or was that later? Like, what were you into as a kid? Oh well, I mean, I was into sports. I played baseball, soccer. You know, when, once I just discovered soccer, I, that, I was you know that's all I was really interested in. But music, for sure, was you know, and still is a big passion of mine. Um, Do rock you play? and roll for sure. Um, 
you know, I, I, I played the trumpet growing up, but then, you know, um, once I got to high school, band was not exactly my thing. Um, partially because I just realized I, I was good, but not I was never going to be great. Okay. You know, so I, I would say that I'm a bit more of a an aficionado. I, I DJed house music in, in the 80s, you know, growing up in Detroit, but um, in school. Be like ska. So you're not playing horns in like a punk band. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> I, 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 uh, I never had the guts to join a band, um, but uh, I definitely love music. And growing up listening to, to rock and roll for sure. But, you know, my dad loved Indian music, so we always had Indian music playing at home. Which, you know, in those days, I don't know that I necessarily liked it that much, but now I certainly do. Sure. You know, and, but disco was very influential for me, too. I love that. Um, so then, you know, once I started getting into high school, you know, of course, you know, that new new wave was coming on, you know, and alternative styles of music, and that was catching my interest, and... Or Bowie, or what yeah, you, you know the Smiths, the Cure, you know Depeche Mode. You know, I really started getting into um, industrial music, so bands like Ministry and Nitzreb, and you know, like anything electronic, really started catching my attention. So yeah, no, I mean, um, I mean, you can see my stack of records right over there, right? And and uh, so those are records that I've had since since the set. You know, my first albums, you know, I got probably in the late seventies, early eighties, and. Uh, still have them you know that zeppelin album right there is probably the first zeppelin zeppelin one that that i bought you know ori- well actually the first as i think about it, the first zeppelin album i bought was physical graffiti on tape but okay anyways yeah there there's uh a big passion for music you know in, in my life and still is um and so you know i loved um the outdoors you know growing up in michigan you know i'm i'm of that age where we ran all and you know played outdoors and rode our bikes everywhere and had fun in the fields in the forests fishing camping i was in boy scouts so um you know i i just i just had you know in my mind a, a very idyllic you know like uh, childhood you know growing up there um you know i grew up in a in a, in a city called westland michigan which um was actually between Detroit and Ann Arbor. My dad was working in Detroit and going to grad school in Ann Arbor at Michigan. And so he picked Westland, and that's where we grew up, and it was a great place to live. Now, what did your dad end up doing? My dad was a physical therapist and health gerontologist, retired now, but still cranking still in, away. Still in Michigan? No, he, he actually moved uh, to Las Vegas um, when I was actually uh, you know, in college, mid-'80s, 86, 87, I think is when they moved. Yeah. And then you studied what in college? Mechanical engineering. Yeah, as my undergrad. Yeah, (laughs) yep, that was my undergrad. And then, um, you know, so I I continued to work at Fiero until they closed the place in 1988. And at that school, we had to have a company that we work for. um, Because in the fifth year, you wrote actually a thesis. Still a bachelor's, but... um, So I had to find another job, and I went to work for a 3M company in their automotive division. So I um, <clears throat> worked at 3M in Southfield, Michigan, and then they sent me to St. Paul to really Stillwater, Minnesota, to finish my thesis. And when I completed that, my boss at the time hired me on, which was good because, you know, the, the uh, auto industry was in a slump, and jobs in Detroit were pretty slim to none. 
so I ended up staying in in Minnesota and hired on there and lived you know, in Minnesota through most of the 90s, working for 3M in their automotive division. Early 90s, at least. Yeah, yeah, but it's funny. Um, I, you know, though I had a love for, for baseball in early early years, um, the last ba- Major League Baseball game I went to, I still remember it, at the, the old Detroit Tiger Stadium. It was 1986. S- you know, season opener, I went to that, and I was bored silly. And, and I, I, I don't know why. I mean, you know, I go to AAA games now, and I love it. But um, there was something about that, that experience that just kind of like left me with this taste in my mouth that ah, I don't think I really want to go to see any more Major League Baseball games. But That's I hilarious. I, I, baseball, you know, obviously is still, you know, something I think is very cool. But um, I haven't been to a Major League game since. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah so crazy. that's been a while. What was, uh, what was your first car? My first car? Oh, God. You know, um, my first car really was a hand-me-down from my dad. It was a Renault, an R12 GTL. Probably one of the ugliest cars that you could own. You know, it, 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 the front looked like the back. You didn't know if the car was coming or going. <laughs> but it had four doors. It was red. It had a you know, manual transmission and a great stereo in it. So, yeah, I could get my friends in it. We could blast music and cruise down the road. So... It was a fun car, but it broke all the time. Oh, no. So, yeah, that's the first time I had to really start working on cars. And, um, yeah, we were – in fact, I went to see Ozzy Osbourne. I think I was a senior in, co- in high school. And after the, sh- after the show, it was January or February, freezing. Went out to the parking structure. Car would not start. Of course, 1 in the morning, you know, or 12 or whenever the hell it was, late, you know, and uh, – underneath the car trying to get this fuel pump to to fire up and sure enough you know just a loose wire but you know not something you want to do at at uh, in detroit at yeah, from the idyllic <laughs> upbringing <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly but uh, that that car you know it was uh it, exactly exactly it totally builds character um, so cool so after college then you're in minnesota Minnesota, yes, and you know, working for 3M. I, you know, I, I went through a series of jobs there. Um, 3M was a great company, very, very innovative. Um, you know, I worked in manufacturing, advanced manufacturing originally. Then I moved back into back into the laboratory in product development. Um, developing. You know, we were doing you know all automotive things. Um, a lot of um, products like striping on cars. That would be something people recognize. Um, the clear clear bra films that now are ubiquitous out there, right? Sure. That was something that um, that I worked on there. You know, some badging products. Um, but we, um, yeah. So I, I was in the development side, and then also when I ended at 3M, I was I m- had moved over to filtration. So these cabin air filters, if you've seen those in in a lot of modern cars. Um, but that was you know again that was the late 90s at that point. Um, but I had switched over. I'd finished an MBA and switched over into the marketing department and was in this international, well, I was in an international business development team where I was, you know, a tech, you know, a tech engineer, tech service engineer traveling throughout Asia. So I had traveled to all Asian countries. Pretty much every other month, I would go for two to three week trips, you know, all the major countries. 3M had subsidiaries there. I'd go there to train, you know, engineers and salespeople and go make customer visits. 
it's mostly automotive, but also motorcycle. Cool. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, then I, I left that group actually and, and joined the filtration group. And then, then from there, I, that's when I, um, I think it was 1998, um, left 3M. I, it was after 10 years there, it was a good run. But I had this itch I wanted to scratch, which was, you know, have my own thing. And I had this headhunter calling me about a position down in Charlotte in North Carolina. So I took it, and it was with a company that actually made filtration material or media and gas phase or odor filtration media. And they needed someone to sell that to filter manufacturers like 3M um, for automotive. I mean, there's a couple different groups, but they wanted me to run the automotive side of the business. So I joined those guys and um, was down in Charlotte for a couple of years. So I had, um, you know, in the 90s, you know, you know the living in Minnesota, you know, it was, it was great because, you know, people are very friendly and, um, you know, I, that's when I really started to indulge my passion in cars and buy some cool cars and start doing track days. Um, I didn't grow up racing. I always admired racing and loved racing, but um, had never really raced. Um, so I had, uh, what got me into that was, I mean, my first new car, in fact, I should tell you, um, I had, uh, at near the end of my college um, undergrad, I had a Honda Civic, an old Honda Civic, and it got rear-ended, and I needed to get a new car. And of course, as like most of us students, we're, you know, I was pretty broke. So I had um, 600 bucks to buy a car, and I bought an old Saab, 1976 Saab 99. So it was a five-door, and I could pile all my stuff in the car, my stereo, my mountain bike, my snowboard, you know. Because the school I was going to every three months, you went from school to work. So everything I owned, I kind of had to carry with me. And because uh, my parents had moved. And, and so the Saab was just perfect for that. Sure. But um, at the end of its life, which when I, it was when I was finishing my, um, my thesis, the, the car uh, basically developed a, either a blown head gasket or a, a, a cracked head. Because all that long then? Nah, about a year, year and a half. But every time I drove the car, I'd have to put water, you know, into the radiator. And sure enough, you could tell she knew it was coming because there was a big cloud of white smoke behind the car. <laughs> <laughs> but I was too broke to, to fix a thing, and I was about to graduate, and you know, and so I knew I, I would be in a good, good place. But anyway, so I did graduate. I, I you know, I, I um. My boss hired me actually before I graduated, as I think about it, and, and uh, so then I was making you know a proper salary. And this new Volkswagen GTI was coming, which had the round headlights. So these were the A2s, right? And and uh, it was a 1991 um, model, and it was like the Euro style lights that we hadn't gotten before. So I love that, and so I ordered it, but it was not going to arrive until the fall. So there it was, uh, you know, the spring, and I have this broken down sob, and I'm thinking, all right, what am I going to do? And I had just ridden a motorcycle for the first time the previous summer and knew that a motorcycle had to be in my future. So I went out and bought a motorcycle. I got rid of the sob, bought a Suzuki, and rode that until the GTI arrived. 
so all summer long you know rain sun you had to be prepared for 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 that but you know when you're at that age you're you know you'll do whatever and and um I, you know, so I rode a motorcycle all summer and into the into the uh, fall until the until the GTI arrived. So, yeah, that was that was the um, first cool car that you know I, I I say you know that that I owned, and then of course you know I I got uh, I started changing the car right, modifying it, different wheels, you know, different steering wheel, um, strut tower brace intake you know all this kind of stuff that we do stereo um but then a couple years later you know i got this really good deal on a new e36 325i bmw and it was rear wheel drive which all of a sudden the handling the feeling from driving that car was something pretty amazing and so i bought that thing sold the gti and joined the bmw cca and that was my introduction to track days and driving on Brainerd International. You know, that's, that's a really fun track. It's like this one mile front straight goes into a, a really fast, you know, sweeper. Um, so that car, I ended up, you know, of course, modifying that thing, putting Dynan suspension on it. And I put M3 wheels, forged wheels on it. And, you know, of course, a Dynan chip and exhaust. Actually, I think on that one, yeah, I had put a... Um, a and b tri-flow exhaust and it was loud as hell you know and it droned terribly you know oh my god <laughs> you know and that's when i realized okay drone is something i cannot live with ever again right so after um after that car what did, oh yeah we had moved to minnesota or to uh to charlotte and um i bought a 911 yeah i bought a 993 and you know, I had a lifelong love for, for Porsche and 911s in particular. Um, so I had actually started the savings fund, and I called it my 911 fund. Right. Yeah, and we'd got to that point, and I thought, all right, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy this 911. And, and it was a couple, three years old, and so the price had deflated a bit, you know, and bought it and loved that car. Um, have some fond trips in that. Like I had, a, I had my, my first daughter was born and I have a great memory of her sitting in the back, my helmet next to her, my wife in the passenger seat. We went from Charlotte down to Atlanta. I dropped those two off at my wife's friends and I went to Talladega and, and raced the car around the track, oh, you know, road Atlanta, but oh, wow. Yeah. So it was, it was a PCA event down there and it was on little Talladega. So there's a small, what was a former motorcycle track so it was pretty tight and small course, and it was perfect. Um, I remember it was, it was pouring rain, and I was sweating bullets. I was like, man, it's my first mid-engine or rear-engine car, really. Um, and, you know, I was always kind of a little apprehensive about this whole lift throttle oversteer issue, right? Yeah, the yeah just coming around, right, and, and spinning on you, right? And so, you know, even though I had done quite a few track days um, with the BMW previous, you know, this was the first rear-engine car for me. So I um, went there, and then it's raining, so you're feeling, oh, my God, the rain, it's going to be slippery. But as it turns out, the rain is one of the best things that could happen to you because the speeds come down. So now all of a sudden, as the car is getting loose underneath you, you're not going at Mach 1. You're going at a reasonable speed. Right. You know, And so your reaction times don't need to be lightning quick, right? And so all of a sudden, you know, by – you know, midday, I'm lift, lifting off throttle to tighten my, you know, 
lying through a corner, you know, controlling the car as it's, you know, as it's moving underneath me. So it was the best thing. You know, it was the best thing that could have happened. So, yeah, that, that car was a lot of fun. I really, really enjoyed that car. And, and funny thing is I, you know, and we had a second daughter, a second kid, and somehow I got in my head that I needed a second practical car. We already had a wagon. I had, an, I had a 94 E320 wagon that my wife drove. And, um, but somehow I convinced myself I needed another practical car that I could get the entire family in. So that this, this Porsche was just impractical. And, and so I bought, you know, an E36 M3 new. And, you know, I, I definitely had a fondness for, for BMWs and, and the M3s in particular. And, and I could get both my kids in there with their car seats, right? It was still in an era before these monstrosity car seats that exist today. Right. But the car seats still took some room. And it was funny, like on that Porsche, I actually got car seats from Europe because the car seats in the U.S. I just could not fit in the back of the Porsche. But in Europe, I could, I, I was able to get them there. And with that job that I was in there, I was traveling quite a bit to 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 Europe. I had a, actually had an office in in Wiesbaden in Germany. Um, and so on one of those trips, I I actually picked up a car seat and brought it back. And so that's 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 the 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 um, extent of my madness, you know, buying car seats in other countries and bringing them back so I can make my car work right. <laughs> so. But uh, ultimately, you know, I went to this M3, and and you know, it was um, sold sold the 911, and it's funny, I sold it for what I paid for, you know, and that was before the value values of these 993s just went crazy, you, you know. I think I, if I still own that car, I could probably sell it for what I had paid now, even now with with miles on it and everything. But uh, yeah, that was that was that was a the first time actually that I ever had a car that I bought and sold for essentially the same amount of money. You know, I was always the guy buying cars and it would just depreciate and you just lose your ass on it and off it goes. All right. That's normal. Exactly. So, so California, you know, we had our second kid and, um, my, my in-laws were living out here and my father-in-law was dying of emphysema and we had come out to visit. In fact, it was 20 years ago for Christmas and, you know, I looked at the situation. And I just said, "Look, this guy, you know, who I liked and had never actually lived anywhere close to, you know, he was a um, Korean War vet and very much a man's man, you know. And so I, I really enjoyed, you know, being around him. But more importantly, we had two kids at that point, and I realized, you know, I grew up with family around me, and my parents were in Vegas, so that was pretty close, and my siblings were there." Um, or close by, and so I thought, you know, we need to be closer to family. We're, we're just at that point in our life, you know, in, in, in that phase in our life where we, we, our kids need to be closer and they need to see their family, you know, more frequently. Sure. And in particular, not knowing how many days or years, you know, that, uh, um, that Andy had left, I felt like, you know, we needed to be out here. So I kind of said to my wife, I'm like, Stace, we need to move. And she agreed and Three months later or four months later, we moved out here. So we, we um, yeah, so we've been out here since April of 2000. So you settled in Temecula. In Temecula, Okay, yeah. so you've been here for 20 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's amazing, really. I mean, we, we rented a house for a year while we were trying to figure out where to live. And we had a house in Charlotte that needed to sell, and that took a few months. And then we, we built a house over here. And yeah, we moved into that house, and you know it's amazing. I'm in the same house, and frankly, it's it's great. You know, it's three miles from my office here, and 
you know, the, um, that's when I decided to start my own business. And so that's, you know, the point at which I decided to, 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 uh, get out of corporate America after 15 years and, um, try this whole entrepreneurship thing. You know, for me, it was, um, that itch I had to scratch, right? And I didn't know whether I was cut out for it. Because when you, you know, when you're in corporate America, you know, in particular, like when I left 3M, I had just started getting stock options. And, you know, I don't want to do the math and on what those damn stock options would be worth today. But I certainly gave up a lot of money, you know, moving, you know, or leaving that company. But, you know, for me, it, it was, you know, this, this, having my own business or starting things, you know, was something I, I just, I needed to try. And at 3M, it was almost somewhat, you know, like I worked on product development, you know, marketing new products, innovation. So I was really kind of um, cut my teeth in an environment that really facilitated or promoted that kind of mindset, you know, product creation, if you will. You know, looking at problems and solving those. I mean, as engineers, that's all, and that's what we're trained to do is solve problems all day long. Um, but the um, this desire to have my own thing kind of came from that. And um, so I started a business, and, um, you know, in these last 20 years, there's been, you know, multiple businesses that I've started, some of which I've had to shut down, others that I've sold, um, and others, you know, and then new ones that I've started, you know, and, and so... Um, it's been, it's been a fun ride and, and I, you know, I, there, there's, you know, certainly you could say, um, the grass is always greener, um, but there are pros and cons and the lack of overall security as an entrepreneur is probably one of the biggest cons, but one of the big pros is your ability to do things the way you want and for me, not having to deal with deal with corporate politics was certainly something that I I, I definitely liked. Just for sure. Yeah, yeah. And so, what was the first business you started? First company I started was Filter Market. Um, we were um, basically um, selling high efficiency air filters, and my intention was to sell the 3M products um, because they had a good brand and it was something I was very familiar with. And with, with the cabin air filter market, I knew quite well. I thought the aftermarket on that would build. Um, but 3M actually ended up exiting that space, but they continued to sell their home furnace filters. So we ended up selling those. And our, our um, sh you know, really what made us kind of compelling is that we carried a bunch of unusual sizes, the ones that you couldn't get at Home Depot where you could find these filters. And so we ended up building, you know, um, a lot of, you know, I mean, this, this customer database of, of people with unusual filter sizes all, o all over the country, you know, How we, that database, well, we, you know, we, we had a website and we, um, we actually, um, you know, advertised, we, 3M would send us referrals. Um, you know, it was early days of e-commerce, if you will, uh, at, but people would find, find us and, ads that you were doing or were yep online you know keyword stuff and spent a lot of money wasted a lot of money <laughs> doing a lot of online advertising that didn't pan out you know but uh in the end you know filters are like razor blades right they're a consumable so the repeat business was re real key for us and at the time i had created this thing i called the minder system where we could we would automatically send you filters and clients would sign up for that 
And so that worked out really well for us. Um, but the funny thing that actually really worked, the biggest fundamental shift that we made to that business, we offered free shipping if you bought a case of filters. And just like that, our average filter sale went from four filters to six filters. You know, just to get free shipping, people would spend the extra money. And it was kind of interesting when we, when we looked at our data and you could see the minute we, f we flipped the switch and started offering the free shipping, our average sale just jumped. Right. You know, and using data to kind of look at that, you know, and it was pretty clear that, uh, you know, the consumer or our, our client behavior was definitely affected by, you know, free shipping. Are you a watch collector, but having trouble finding something cool and unique? I mean, the last thing you really want is what everyone else has, right? Well, this is where my friend and former Standard Age podcast guest, Tim Jackson, comes in. He and his wife, Jana, own Passion Fine Jewelry in Solana Beach, California, where you'll find an incredible assortment of independent watches waiting for you in their shop and online. And if you're getting engaged, have an anniversary coming up, or simply have another reason to buy jewelry, they have you covered. Passion Fine Jewelry also employs a goldsmith on staff for any custom desires, so you're able to go that route if you so choose. Visit Passion Fine Jewelry when you find yourself in Southern California, but they're also open 24 hours a day at passionfinejewelry.com. You can also find a wealth of information through Tim's blog, independentintime.com, where he covers anything independent watchmaking related, uh, among a plethora of other information. So check that out as well. I've really enjoyed creating these podcasts on behalf of Standard H and sharing each of these personal stories with all of you. We each have goals, and it's the entrepreneurial spirit that inspired me to start the company. You can further support the brand and the podcast by visiting standard-h.com to pick up your choice of merchandise. And as always, thank you for listening. Lastly, if you have a moment, please rate and review the show. It makes a tremendous difference in keeping these things going. Now back to my conversation with Shanu. And so did that business you sold that business or yeah we we sold that business um you know we, we actually got into some commercial business with that we we actually were supplying a lot of uh, green buildings in new york city this is the early days um you know Need certification exactly yeah. so we were members of the u.s green building council um in fact i don't know if i got a folder down there but yeah so we were early members of that and you know in fact i went to the first green build conference you know and and so we, um, but we supplied a number of the green, you know, buildings. In fact, the first platinum building in New York City, we were supplying. Okay. Yeah, and so, yeah, so that was an interesting business. Um, but what happened, you know, probably a couple of years after starting that, I started uh, my first real automotive business. Um, and, it, and it prompted, it actually came from the fact that I had a Lotus Elise on order. I, you know, this Lotus Elise was introduced in the mid to late 90s, the Series 1 cars, and I was enraptured with the thing. It was what I felt was my dream car. What, what drove that? Was it the, the standard equation of power-to-weight ratio, or, like, was it the design? Or Yeah, what? I mean, a, a com, you know, really a combination of all of those things. I mean, Lotus as a brand, I loved, you know, their F1, you know, uh, victories, um, the Esprit, you, you know, the, the, the cool cars that that, that company made. Um, the, um, the, the, and, and I, I know Lotus guys cringe when I say this, but it's true, and that is there is a connection between the Fiero and the Elise. I see. 
And I can't say that that's what drove me towards it. What truly drove me towards it was my love for um, driver's cars and my love for motorcycles. Um, so like I had to own a Ducati. Um, well, I do, I still do now, but, um, this was a different one at the time. And, and so the, in, the engineering innovation in, in, in the, um, Elise, you know, absolutely sparked my, you know, engineering, you know, interest. The design of the car itself was also really cool. You know, very Dino-esque. You can see some of the, you know, influences there. Um, but the fact that it was a pure, pure driver's car, that was just very, very exciting to me. And um, when they introduced it, I remember I was at the SAE show, Society of Automotive Engineers show in Detroit, mid-90s, and the manufacturer of the chassis had one on display. And these, you know, they're aluminum extrusions that they glue together and rivet. And I remember asking him, I said, hey, how long is that going to last? You know, is it, does it have the durability and he goes, you know, we think it's going to last 100,000 miles, but we really don't know. We've run it through a lot of tests, but we don't really know. So I love the fact that that chassis was very creative. You know, the engineering behind it was very innovative. It was a 150-pound chassis. It was amazing, right? And so that kind of thing was um, especially exciting to me. And so when they finally announced that they're going to bring a Series 2 car to the U.S., I got on the wait list. So that was... Um, you know, I put money down for that car, and it was funny thing is I actually had money down for a, the GT3, the first iteration of GT3 911s that were being sold in the U.S. And I took that deposit back from the Porsche dealer and I uh, put it down at, at the Lotus dealer um, because the Lotus was more of what I wanted, which was more pure, you know, lighter still. I had owned a 911 already, so I wanted to have something. You know, I had never owned a Lotus at that point. Different experience, you know, and um, so I wanted to go down that path and try that. And so, you know, like with every Lotus, you know, there's always delays after delay after delay. And so anyhow, um, I decided, you know, as I was looking around, there's nobody doing any aftermarket, you know, parts. And I had changed every car that I had owned, you know, since the GTI with aftermarket accessories, you know, for track days or for styling, or you know, whatever fancied me at the at at the moment, right? So, so was that driven also by like your, um, I guess inclination to make it better, or was that your inclination to just make it your own, or is it a combination of both? Yeah, you know, it's it's a, probably a combination of both. I mean, I've always been, I think, somewhat independent-minded and in thinking, you know, to. Um, the annoyance of, of my friends and family, maybe, you know, but I don't typically listen. To identify with this. <laughs> yeah. And so I didn't necessarily listen to the same music that, you know, other people were listening to or, you know, like the things that other people, you know, even the cars. Right. And so, you know, even though Porsche or BMW are the natural performance and enthusiast, you know, marks, which I owned. I was kind of interested in that, you know, the, the Lotus, which is a bit more eccentric, if you will. So I, for me, um, making it my own was definitely a key piece. You know, when I was a kid, I'd buy, you know, old beat up bicycles and fix them up and sell them because I could do that. I, I, I was mechanically inclined enough and I would paint them and fix them up and sell them and I would make it the way I wanted to make it and I, and they would sell, you know, and 
I mean, what was I making 20 bucks or something on a bike or something, but y you know, I've always wanted to make things the way I wanted it. And I've always had a very keen interest in, in design and how things are styled or looked. In fact, I mean, before I decided to go into engineering, um, I was actually, uh, also contemplating, you know, becoming an architect instead. So I loved, so I've loved architecture and design, you know, since, since young, you know, since I was in high school as well. And so, yeah, I mean, so styling, um, but performance in particular, you know, having gone to the racetrack and driven, especially with BMW CCA and PCA, I could see where, you know, a street driven car kind of comes up short in certain situations, whether it's safety or performance. And I could see those trade-offs, right? And so, you know, as an engineer who's just focused on trying to solve problems, you know, it, it just opened up a new world of, of excitement. And so for me, um, to create a company that would make aftermarket accessories for the lease, that was something I was absolutely excited about, you know, because I knew I could do it. You know, uh, you know, all my best friends are in the automotive industry. And um, I felt like, you know, I had enough experience having tuned these various cars that I'd had that I have enough ideas and can typically identify the things that I would change. And, um, but yeah, so, you know, since then we had, you know, I've developed hundreds of parts for the Elise and Exige and Evora. Um, and you know, some of them are lifestyle products. Some of them are styling products, but many of them are performance products, you know, and, some of those are designs, you know, strictly for track use. Um, others are just designed to make the car better on the street. You know, we we one of our latest innovations is is an exhaust system that doesn't drone at all. You know, from that terrible experience with my 325, um, I said I just cannot stand droning exhausts, and so we you know came up with a muffler that's got a Helmholtz chamber, and so it doesn't drone when you're on the freeway but it shrieks when you're on cam and it just sounds great. So, yeah, I mean, it, 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 um, my desire to, you know, make things better, but also to try to make it, you know, uh, what I wanted as an individual, you know, kind of drove, drove that. Hey, you've got basically an umbrella company. Yeah. So, you know, kinetic is our, um, is our kind of parent company that we have created, um, to really focus on parts, um, and we've done parts, you know, for, for various cars, and, you know, one thing, I mean, I mean I've mean, i even been in rock crawling. We had parts. We had a business called Rev 111. We were doing rock, you know, for Jeeps, for TJs, and the JKs had just come out. So we've done parts for all sorts of stuff, for Pontiac Solstice, Saturn Sky, Mini Coopers. So over the years, we've done, you know, parts for various cars. And so like with InnoKinetic, we said, all right, well, let's, what else can we do? And we started doing some stuff for Teslas, like the Model S. We have two-piece brake rotors that are super lightweight. We felt unsprung weight savings can, can help. And, you know, we, we, we do these super lightweight BBS forged wheels for the new Ford GT that are as light as the carbon fiber wheels. So with InnoKinetic, you know, we, we've developed and sell a bunch of these um, parts mostly for Lotus, but for a few other makes as well. But we also do engineering for other companies and have um, most of who want to keep things pretty discreet and quiet. So we have confidentiality and non-disclosures, you know, with with them. But um, we've we've just recently finished a design of a shifter mechanism for a boutique car manufacturer, and it's a mid-engine sports car that will be coming out in the near near future. 
So that's really cool. Um, we've even done things like um, and manufacture a really cool watch box for, for a cool brand that's out there doing a really nice watch. Um, but other things that you know we have in the, in the wings from an engineering perspective. Um, but under this umbrella with InnoKinetic, we have another brand we call Black Shadow Motors, which we you know actually came up with that name from the Vincent Black Shadow. So for any of you motorcycle guys out there, the, the Vincent was our inspiration for that name. I just happened to Google Black Shadow Motors and saw that nobody had actually locked down that URL. So GoDaddy, 19 bucks later or whatever it was, <laughs> and bang, we had it. You know. yeah. So with Black Shadow Motors, we, we, we basically are selling niche vehicles um, we're servicing cars, you know, mostly Lotuses, but we're expanding beyond that. And then um, we're doing restoration. And that's been a big focus for me the last couple of years. Um, it's very similar to building race cars like we've done, or I guess I haven't talked about the Draken, which was a car that we developed. Um, and, uh, but, you know, restoring cars is, again, is, it's a very similar process, but it's, it's, uh, it's something that we have, and you know, our shop is is um, about five times bigger than what I had before now, and so I think like we, I think we, I counted the other day. I think there's 14 Lotuses in here, but in restoration, I think we we've got somewhere in the neighborhood about 10 cars, you know, in underway, and more coming in. Um, so we're pretty excited about that. You know, we've got a paint booth in house. You know, we, we, our our restoration specialist he's a hammer and dolly guy, so he, he does metal work the old fashioned way. But he's also very good at composites. And so, in fact, last year we built a, a Lotus we call the 111 RS Spider that started life as an Exige and it rolled over on a racetrack. So we had to fix every body panel or repair it or replace it. And we painted it in-house and made it into a Spider. So we cut the windshield down and super light and just it's got all of our tricks on it, all of our cool parts. And we took it to the West Coast Lotus Meet last spring and won Best of Show. So that was cool. That was a big surprise because they typically give that award to um, really stock cars. Yeah, nothing updated or, yeah, or changed. No, nothing as as wild as, as we showed up with. So yeah. it was a bit of a, a surprise, but that was cool. It, it just kind of showed the, the 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 community, you know, was was um, excited about what we had to do with 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 uh, with lotuses. But you know, over the years, we've built all sorts of interesting lotuses. You know. We, we've, we've done a couple of art cars where we hired really cool artists and this guy, Neil Ratnavira, to paint, you know, much in the, in the same in a way that uh, the BMW art cars have been done. Um, now, of course, BMW, you know, has very famous artists who, um, you know, I'm sure demanded a lot of money. We didn't have that kind of money. And uh, though our artist is maybe not as, fa- as famous, he's certainly as talented as, as some of the guys, I think, that uh, BMW employed. But um Sure. Neil did a great job on both of our cars. Our first car, we actually campaigned that in Lotus Cup, and we set track records that took years for, for the rest of the racers to, to beat. In fact, I mean, our, our the record that um, we set at Button Willow stood for like two years. Wow. Yeah, we, we, we set that with an Elise, and, uh, but it had all of our cool parts on it, and we certainly had a fantastic driver, Glenn. You know, if you're hearing this, you're you're awesome, man. And so, but that was you know years ago, and and um, you know those kind of uh, cars that we built were just fun to, to to do, and we learned a lot of things from that. And you know, when they say that, you know, you do learn from racing, and some of that, uh, you know, the things that you learn can trickle down into other things that you do. And and um, 
but we... What's one of the larger lessons you've learned? Well, um, that's, uh, you know, the lightweight nature of the lotuses on the track in particular um, are much easier on the consumables. So we built these two-piece brake rotors with this great company, GiroDisc, back in 0506, and it's still the gold standard today. We made them too, so good that they last for, you know, by track day standards forever. You know, people are getting 50, 60 track days out of these brake rotors. And, you know, the thing that we learned is sometimes you can overbuild things, right? And, you know, Colin Chapman, who was the founder of Lotus, his philosophy was if the car breaks as it car crosses the finish line, he did a perfect job of engineering it, right? So last just long enough to finish a race. I think with our brake rotors, we, we certainly went in the other direction. You know, we kind of followed, the, I think, the, the Porsche philosophy of, of building it for endurance. But we didn't do that going in. You know, it's just the, 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 the nature of a light car means that it's going to be less aggressive on certain components that on a heavier car would would be you know, used up pretty quickly. Sure. You know. Well, you were nice enough to give me a little tour of the factory or the, the showroom. Yeah. And well, I guess it is a factory uh, in all fairness. Yeah, our shop. Yeah, sure. <laughs> the shop. I don't think um, it was a factory, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah, the shop. Um, you kind of gave me a little bit of a background as to how InnoKinetic started. Can you go into that with like your business partners and such? Like what were you doing before and how did this begin? Yeah, so we, um, we, we developed a car called the Draken. And it's a mid-engine chromoly tube chassis based car with an LS3 in the back and actually used a, a, a 911 gearbox. So just a pure driver's car, 2,000 pounds, 430 horsepower V8, naturally aspirated, rear drive, no driver's aids whatsoever. So pure, pure driver's car, right? Like the kind of cars that I like. And, you know, it all stemmed from, again, this just obsession with these lightweight cars, started with the Lotuses and then I bought an Ariel Atom and, and that got me, went, you know, put me down this road of these crazy lightweight cars we started importing the BAC Mono. We were the first importer of that car, and, and we used to you know, fully assemble them in our shop. Um, and so the Draken kind of stemmed from all of that. You know, we wanted to create a car that um, had an American V8 in it. You know, these, all these other boutique cars that we were dealing with had four-cylinder engines, which are cool, and I love them. But we saw kind of a niche opening up where there were some potential clients who just could not get their heads wrapped around driving a car with a four-cylinder, even though the power-to-weight ratio was awesome and beyond, frankly, their, some of their skill sets. So I saw that market, you know, where building a V8 would be smart, you know, because there's some people that that's what they got to have, you know, that no replacement for displacement kind of mindset, right? And so plus the fact that um, these four-cylinder engines that we were, that, that were in these cars, like aerials and, and the BACs, we're not emissions compliant. And so in some states, we're totally shut out of, of being able to register them. You know, in other states, you can register them as kit cars. So GM was building this E-Rod, still does, this crate motor that is co emissions compliant. So we thought, hey, you know, what could we build with that? So the Draken was really the, the, the um, kind of uh, uh, product that came from that thinking, you know, that... We wanted to create a simple American um, car with American muscle in it, but it embodied all the elements of a pure, lightweight driver's car. Um, and 
so we created this car and, you know, I, I wanted to see, you know, I knew I had enough money to build a few of them. And so I kind of stuck my neck and put everything on the line and did this car and it nearly killed me for sure financially, you know, uh, but we showed that we could build a really cool car and that people would like it and that it worked well. And we were in auto week and, you know, we were on Leno's garage and Matt Farah drove it. And, you know, the, 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 um, editors, uh, you know, motor trend drove it. And so we got a lot of really good feedback and customers bought it and they love the car. And, but it used everything that I had financially, you know, um, you know, building a car, is a very expensive undertaking and you know the passion that we have as car guys sometimes overwhelms our you know good sense you know good prudent financial sense for sure and probably the, the, the certainly you know as an entrepreneur the one thing that i've learned is you do need to 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 watch you know the way you do spend your money and maybe it was the 10 years i spent at 3m where R and D, you know, we spent money like crazy, but it was because we had other parts of the business that were making lots of money, right? And so, uh, you know, I didn't quite get that piece of it, right? And and so, for me, R and D was uh, was just kind of you know, like breathing for me. You know, coming up with new products was something that I just did. And so, this car, you know, which would intimidate, you know, most most people like or building a car. I just kind of th just went for it, right? There's this leap of faith, and some of it comes from being, frankly, you know, naive. But other parts of it just come from being reckless, right? And just it's, bullheadish. <laughs> yeah, you're just you're like, I can do this. I can figure this out. I'm gonna make this work. And you know, it's not driven by money as far as like this desire to be become this, you know you know millionaire trillionaire gazillionaire kind of thing it didn't come from that place for me you know and and right or wrong that's that's just the truth and and you know but the net result of that is that you you go maybe further than you can really you know pull off and but i knew that i could get it to a certain point and i needed to go find you know some investors and so you know we um i talked to just dozens and dozens and dozens of, of you know, uh, c uh, companies, investors, people, y you know, groups, VCs. But the truth of the matter is most of the most of these folks don't look at automotive in, in the same manner as they do maybe some social media or other, you know, businesses that uh, go that, you know, uh, Silicon Valley goes nuts over, you know. Um, so, um it was it was a, a pretty tough slog trying to find the right people and and um, but amazingly um, at my CrossFit gym, it, you know one of my buddies that, that I became friends with there, he and his dad um, had a business where they invested in small businesses and helped them grow. And they're both car guys, you know, the, and and motorcycle guys, so we hit it off really well, and we um, joined up and. They, you know, they looked at how I was running the business and they said, Shanu, you're doing a great job as far as customers are concerned and your products are awesome and the quality is great, but uh, you're really just breaking even and that's not the way to run a business. And um, so I kind of looked at them and said, yeah, yeah, I guess you're right, um, but what's wrong with breaking even? And, and so, 
you know, they, they clearly showed to me that um, to, to really build a sustainable business, you have to make money that, um, is, that you can, you know, use on a rainy day. And so, you know, it's funny, you know, 10 years ago when the economy melted, you know, I lost probably 30, 40 percent of, of my revenue just like almost, you know, within a couple of months. Sure. Because right? of the, the nature of the business. Yeah. Right? I mean, I was selling things that nobody really needed, you know, like it's all discretionary spending stuff. Right. And I kept innovating. I kept coming out with new things. And so we clawed some of that business back. But we did it at the sacrifice of margin for sure, which was already thin. So, you know, these guys, you know, the medicine that they were administering me was a tough pill to swallow, right? But it was the smart pill to swallow. And I was at a point where I felt like, okay, what they're telling me makes sense. And um, I got to give this a shot. I've tried everything else. And it and my the results have always been the same. So... You know, the the let me try to follow their financial advice and let's structure this in that manner. So what were some of the things that changed? You know, um, selling products that other manufacturers had developed that have thin margins. That, you know, it's an easy way to get into a space selling other people's products, but inevitably you're given pretty thin margins. And there's certainly some, like, we were selling things from some uh, manufacturers overseas in England, I'll just say, you know, that had very thin margins. And we realized that though we were selling, you know, these products, in the end, we truly weren't making any money. Because the amount of time and effort it took to deal with that, you know, that supplier and... Import duties, I'm sure. All of that, quality issues timing you know the lead time you know all this stuff you know you send the money and then you wait you know weeks and weeks to get your stuff so now your money's hung up there and you know so that was a fundamental shift that we made and we basically you know stopped selling certain products and started to kind of just more focus on the things that we had developed ourselves that we get manufactured here um or, I mean, some of our products are manufactured overseas as well. But that gave us a bit more control and, frankly, gave us a bit more margin. I mean, it's still automotive margins here. You know, we're, we're, we are still selling car parts in the end. But now, you know, um, we've got some more margins that are far more sustainable that allow us to have the um, cash flow to really support a business. Sure. Yeah. So what are the kind of brass tacks um, operations that you guys do now? As far as... Like what, what does the business consist of these days? Yeah, yeah we're selling parts. Um, so, you know, we got thousands of customers all over the world that we're shipping stuff to, mostly in North America. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we got clients all over Europe, all over Asia, Middle East. Um, and these are all, you know, mostly Lotus enthusiasts, you know, um, but then we also are doing the engineering services for certain companies. Um, and we're servicing cars, mostly Lotus, but we're expanding beyond Lotus now. And we're selling some of these niche cars. So we've been buying used Lotuses in particular and refurbishing them so that they're kind of mechanically like new. But since we have a body and paint man, 
and a paint booth, we also are refurbishing them cosmetically. So now someone who couldn't buy a Lotus Elise new 10 years ago because they were still in school or whatever the issue is, they could now buy a car that's been basically reconditioned by us to a standard that's way better than pretty much most of the cars being sold by private parties. Yeah. You know, and certainly better than most of the cars being sold by used car dealers. Right. So, you know, I love this car. I believe it's a platform that's got long legs. You know, I think 20 years from now, 40 years from now, people will still be driving these cars and enjoying, you know, having, you know, getting the pleasure of driving them as sports cars. So, you know, even with autonomous vehicles on their way, um, I think that uh, private track, you know, tracks will still be out there. And I think we still have big, big stretches of road in remote places in this country that um, I think we'll still be able to have some fun in. But uh, so I think, you know, people are still going to love those cars, you know, because all these modern cars are becoming so heavy, so um, electronic, so, so, um, uh, so many computer controlled um, devices to, to, to kind of filter the fun factor, you know, the response, the feel that you get from driving. So, we, you know, we're selling those cars for that reason because I feel like they are really one of the last cars that still give you that feeling. And then the restoration side that we talked about earlier is becoming a really big and important part of our business now. And, you know, again, it stems from the fact that Building cars like the Draken or BAC Mono or a race car, Race Lotus, you know, the, the work that you do in, in doing those things is quite similar to the restoration side. But there's you know some tricks there that we got that that we've employed too to just make sure that we keep the cash flowing because restoration can also be a, a you know have, it's got a lot of you know financial pitfalls in it too. And so we we've, we've kind of put some guidelines in place there to keep ourselves from getting in too deep. Um, and drying up cash flow too quickly. So, I mean, as a simple example, we bill every two weeks. So whatever work, you know, the labor, the materials, client gets an invoice every two weeks. And that allows us to keep the guys paid and the lights on and all of what needs to happen in, in a business. Sure. And, you know, that's, that's a fundamental shift compared to a lot of shops where they'll go months without, you know, getting really paid for the work that they've done. Right, just whenever it's completed. So um, what are you driving these days? Like, what's fun for you? So, you know, I got a Ducati I keep here at the shop, and, you know, that's my you know, weekend. I just get on it. We, got, we have this fantastic road that's right you know, we're at the base of that road. So I'll go, go ride my Ducati up in there. Um, but... I have a Lotus, you know, Elise that's modified heavily with all of our stuff. That's really my go-to fun car. Um, you know, I live three miles away, so I drive a EV and a hybrid, you know. Um, frankly, I love the fact that I don't have to go to the gas station. Um, I love uh, the silent running and the fact that I got Bluetooth and I can make phone calls in the car. But my fun comes from the Lotus, comes from the Ducati, um, you know, we represent a brand called Vool. It's a Mexican brand, and they have a fantastic little two-seat roadster. So we have one of those as a demo. I just actually we had a client track day at Spring Mountain. You know, we've got a small race shop there. I've been a member there for, I don't know, 10 years it feels like now. Um, and so I was just at the track a couple weekends ago. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's those are the cars that I get the most fun from. 
But, um, you know, we have a G-Wagon here that's a two-door soft top wolf you know from this company expedition motor vehicles that's also super cool to 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 drive and it's a manual transmission diesel so it's slow as molasses but <laughs> it's like an old defender oh yeah exactly and i mean but it'll crawl over anything yeah you know i took it out to a rally you know last year and it was just just cool just so much fun you know it's slow going but it's a different style of driving and, tons and, of torque oh yeah lots of torque <laughs> yeah. plenty of torque but you could run faster than this thing accelerates. You know, it's, it's hilarious. That's funny. Yeah. But there's fun in that. You know, it's a different style of fun. You know, everything doesn't have to be at Mach 1. Sure. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, we, we um, I've got um, a bunch of fraternity brothers you know, that are all car guys and that most live in Michigan. And every year they do this drive down to Ohio where there's some amazing, amazing roads. If you live in Detroit, you know there isn't a turn there to save your life. I mean, it's flat, boring roads. So we drive about three hours south into into Ohio, Marietta, Ohio, and they have the most amazing, amazing roads. And so the guys, everyone's got cool cars. And so I've been able to you know, join them the last couple of years. Um, last year, Auto Europe in Detroit lent me a, an Avora um, 400 and had a great time with that car. The year before that, you know, my fraternity brother Raj lent me his 06 GT. So that thing was sweet. Really good, good car. A lot of power, a lot of torque, but proper GT. Nice balance, and we were really going for it. Yeah. Well, we can't talk Lotus without talking about the acronym. Lots of trouble, usually serious, is what many people say Lotus stands for. So I feel, if I could put words in your mouth, that you're kind of removing that acronym based on some of the products you're doing, right? Just for longevity purposes for example yeah i mean lotus really made a big shift by putting in these toyota motors into these cars so the truth of the matter is they're actually pretty damn reliable and i tell everyone this keep your fluids fresh and nuts and bolts tight and you know if you if you let the oil warm up correctly um these cars can run and we have clients with two hundred thousand miles in these cars we have one guy with three hundred thousand miles so it's a Toyota, you know, engine and transmission. You know, they can, you know, they can last. Now you have to, you know, you got to know how to heal and tow your downshifts if you want to, you know, allow your transmission to hold up. But they are cars that can hold up really well. You know, our focus has been how do you make it live on a racetrack? You, you know, um, more so than longevity on the street per se. But we've done longe street longevity things as well. You know the. And plastic end caps on the stock radiators tend to crack. So we've got an all aluminum radiator that fixes that issue. You know, it's, you know, the aftermarket is, it's, it's much easier for us because our requirements are very narrow compared to an OEM engineer, you know, cause I've been there. I, you know, I worked in that world and an OEM engineer has to make a component that will work in Alaska and in the Mojave, you know, I mean, it's got to work in the desert and in, in, you know, in, in the, the coldest place on earth. And when a manufacturer sells a car, it's, they, they've got to put a warranty on the damn thing, too. And so these engineers are um, really um, given a much harder scope to meet with every component. In the aftermarket, we don't really give a rat's ass about Alaska. We certainly don't really care about the desert, you the know? Hobby, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, we, we, 
if we tell someone, okay, yeah, it's going to work, but you're going to have to rebuild it after 30 hours or 50 hours, well, that's just the nature of racing parts, right? And so, but having said that, you know, things like our baffled oil pan is something that allows that engine, you know, in these cars to, to, to live with track use. You know, this car will pull over 1G with the, the tires that it comes with from the factory. You know, I think at 1G, you know, fluid will stand at like a 45-degree angle. And the stock oil pan in this car is not baffled. So that pickup is going to get starved, and an engine will blow up. So with our baffling, um, we solve that issue. You know, we've tested that up to like 1.7 Gs, and it, it holds up. And so things like that that we've done, certainly for track day longevity and durability. Um, so, you know, it's, it's – um, but I, but I always, you know, again, if the fundamental um, car itself wasn't good, all of what we do, you know, I mean, we're not making um, the proverbial silk purse out of a sow's ear. You know, we started out with a pretty damn good product. And so we're just doing some little refinements. You know, track use is a completely different environment. And any of these manufacturers, you know, they're – and, and with the rise of track days, a lot of people have started to complain about track day problems that these cars that they buy have, you know, and every manufacturer has been afflicted with that, you know, um, whether it's Porsche or, or Ford, Mustang, GTs, you know, uh, Corvettes, ha you know, having issues, Lotuses, you know, you name it, you know, Ferrari, Lamborghini, everyone, you know, because a track day environment is far more extreme. And building a car that's going to stay reliable to the expectation of, of the regular consumer is just unrealistic. Right, you right. Know, totally unrealistic. But it's just the nature of where we're at. You know, as the market changes as it has and track days have become so prevalent that the, you know, in the past, you know, you were in a racing organization and you kind of had a better understanding of the trade-offs of taking your car and putting it on a racetrack. Now people drive a car from the showroom straight to a racetrack and hammer it and think that the car should just hold up, you know, because it's brand new and that the manufacturer should cover the warrant, you know, warranty when the car blows up. And right. so I think it's, 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 it's a bit unrealistic, unfortunately, but that's just the nature of where we live today. Sure. You know, you well, I mean, I think the good news is, is if it's good enough for the track, it's probably good enough for the street. I mean, that's for sure. You know, and, and it doesn't work the opposite way i mean other yeah. than maybe slick tires right like yeah. i mean but you know not to get into a rabbit hole but yeah you know it's like if running like i can walk in my running shoes that's you right know? so that's the good news absolutely but um one of the things i i like to ask people are, are kind of the two questions of what what has been the hardest part and then the other ones what's the easiest part but i'm <laughs> jumping ahead yeah um the hardest part of being an entrepreneur, I assume, is what you're saying, right? Yeah, is is the uncertainty. You know that that's you have to be willing to live in the gray zone. You know, we try to make everything black or white, but the truth of the matter is, you have to live in that uncertain place, and it can be a very dark place for some people, right? Not knowing exactly, right? There's that saying, you know, you eat what you kill, and and you know, if you haven't figured out the small business hustle. And that's how to, you know, make money um, by selling things that you've that that you've developed, then you're going to struggle. And so 
I find that to be still the hardest part is, you know, um, though I've sold millions of dollars worth of products and services, um, it's still that hard bit that you got to work on. And you really have to f solve a real problem that's compelling enough that people are willing to, you know, um, give up their hard-earned money to, to have. And so you have to prove to those, you know, to those clients, you know. And um, so, yeah, I would say that that's, that's the hardest thing. Um, the, the easiest thing is, <laughs> for me anyways, is probably somewhat related in that it's, it's coming up with new ideas. You know, I, I I wake up in the middle of the night with ideas, and I still do. I mean, I mean, I, I have ideas all constantly, and so that's good and bad, of course. You know, because I get you got to focus, of course. But with the um, coming up with ideas that I think are compelling, that I think people are interested in, um, you know, I was doing. I've created another little side um, business called Brand Assassins. And we're just we're like an ad agency doing strategic brand development for companies. I've had I've I've created so many brands over the years that I've had friends and family ask me to help them, and I've done it for for quite a few. And now I just realize, you know, why don't I start charging? Frankly, for this too. I had a very similar conversation the other day about even just like personal style. I've got friends calling me all the time, and I'm mm -hmm. like. I need to find a way to monetize this without exactly. being an asshole. <laughs> I know, I know. It's it's a little frustrating. It's a little frustrating, but yeah, you know. And you do it, and you figure out some way to to, to have some fun with that because it's not the main thing, you right. know. But I I like the the creative release from that, right? Because you know, again, coming back to the idea, well, it's easy for me. It's all these new ideas, and so you know that that's not something I'm going to spend you know the majority of my time doing, but. It's another creative release of a different way that I can help people, you know, because it, it's it's something that I feel, you know, I'm reasonably good at. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Shanu, this has been super fun even to be here in uh, the office looking out at all these, like, incredible vehicles. Clark Gable's Thunderbird, for example. <laughs> yeah, the F-Bird. I think it's pretty cool. Very, very cool. 100%. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I look over my desk and I see... All sorts of cool stuff, you know, cool cars, cool motorcycles, trucks. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a dream come true for for you know a car guy for for sure. Yeah. Well, hopefully we can squeeze in a track day one of these days. Absolutely. All I'm right. He I'm ahead of there on the twenty fourth. Oh, good to know. All right. All right. We'll see you soon. All right, Wesley. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Just want to thank Shanu one more time for having me at the Black Shadow offices. The shop is borderline unreal it's just super fun to walk around and see all the cars and memorabilia that he's got there um really fantastic time and they're doing some killer killer work um as always thank you clear audio for the use of your headphones as well as jensen reed and super beautiful for providing the theme music as always thank you so much for listening and please don't forget to rate and review the podcast it does help Thank you so much, and I will catch you next week. Bye, everyone.